Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Last week we finished The Strength of Courage, and today we have a special episode beginning a new strength, aspiration. To live is to lean into the future. We're always stretching toward one thing or another, the next person, the next task, the next sight or sound, the next breath. This strength focuses on meeting your need for satisfaction by reaching for and achieving results that are important to you. In particular, during this series of episodes, we'll explore how to pursue your aims while being fundamentally at peace with whatever happens. We're beginning the strength of aspiration with a conversation between Dr. Hansen and Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a several-time best-selling author, Harvard-trained psychiatrist, and clinical professor at UCLA. During this episode, he'll explain how you can use Mindsight to tap into the dreams you had as a child and honor those aspirations as an adult. This interview is also a part of the Foundations of Wellbeing online program. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. I'm Rick Hansen, and we have here today the opportunity to listen to uh, and interact with Dr. Dan Siegel, a friend of mine, a legendary teacher, someone who has, um, I think, arguably made more contributions, or at least he's tied for first place in the last 20 years than anyone in the field of uh, in the Western world in terms of psychology, parenting, and related fields like coaching, human resources training, uh, mindfulness training, etc. Dan is the author of a number of books. Uh, he's really quite prolific. Some of those books include The Developing Mind, The Mindful Brain, and Brainstorm, a marvelous book about adolescence, uh, which reaches into the 20s, uh, as we'll find out. A book for adolescents and those who work with adolescents or love adolescents, which is indeed very, very possible. Dan is a clinical professor at UCLA Medical School. He founded his own institute, the Mindsight Institute. You can see more about him and get more of his resources, which are really remarkable, at drdansiegel.com, S-I-E-G-E-L.com. And uh, I'll just finish up by saying that, um, you know, there are a number of sort of teachers, famous people in the general field of psychology. And I can say without naming names that not all of them walked or talk. And Dan is someone who very, very much walks his talk, which is one of the best things about him. So I thought we could talk with him today about aspiration. Thanks, Rick. And uh, hello to everyone listening in. And it's really great to see you on camera. And it was fun to be with you last week uh, together in San Francisco. So this particular interview is for the pillar of well-being that is aspiration, which in my model has to do with taking uh, one of the four aspects of well-being, in this case relating, and using it to build resources inside a person so that they can meet their fundamental need for satisfaction, broadly defined. Thus the general uh, umbrella theme of aspiration. And one reason, Dan, I wanted to ask you about this is that you yourself have aspired and succeeded at a very high level And you've done so, as I can say from watching you personally, with an enormous amount of grace. So I feel like you have something to tell us here, both from the inside out individually, uh, as well as more from the outside in as a physician and a graduate of Harvard Medical School and uh, someone who's been a clinician and a parent uh, for many years. So that's the larger context here of what we're doing. So if we could, Dan, before we get into anything in particular, I'd like to ask you a question that I ask everybody, which is, why has it been important to you personally to develop psychological resources, inner strengths, broadly defined, which is what this Foundations of Well-Being is really about? Why has that mattered to you, and why have you invested in doing that yourself? Well, you know, I think uh, these are great questions, Rick, and thanks for putting together your whole program and your whole body of work, too. It's a Always a pleasure when I, I get one of your newest books and you ask me to take a look at it and make a comment on it. It's always uh, fun to read and I always learn a lot. So thank you. Um, you know, uh, the question you're asking about a personal journey and a source of uh, aspiration inside of me and its relationship to resilience, I think is a great place to start because um, I think for myself, uh, 
there was always a, a tension between an inner experience and the messages I was getting from the outside world, whether they began in my family or whether they were in school from my peers or messages I was getting from teachers, there was always some tension there. And the first place, I guess, in us talking about aspiration would be to be able to tune in to an internal source of, you could call it um, knowledge, you could call it experience, you could call it awareness, just a, 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 an inner spring of sensations that uh, in schools we often aren't uh, given the tools to access them. In our homes, for some of us, we're not given the kind of experiences that would urge us to respect them or even pay attention to them. And then I think what happened with me as I moved from college life onward, the disparity between my inner sense of things and the professional world I was being trained in was so great that um, it all kind of collapsed. Uh, and there was a turning point when I was an older adolescent, when I was probably around 20, uh, well, 20, actually 19, 20, when I had to kind of reformulate certain ways of of being, or I just wouldn't it wouldn't have been able to go forward. And we can talk about that, but it's that ability to tap in that, that then um, if you respect that, gives you a way to swim through a sea of otherwise very confusing experiences in the social world, professional world, the larger ecological world. And so I would say the first source of resilience for me came from a, a, a need to be anchored in my own truth, if you will, and try to have that be a guiding light um, that kept me strong in the face of uh, other messages I was getting. Right. I know it sounds pretty generic, but I, we can get specific if you want. But I would say for everyone listening and, and for the way we're discussing it, without that awareness of an inner sensibility, uh, everything else becomes adapting like a chameleon to the world. And then in the end, you can feel quite empty and confused as to who you really are, because as social creatures, of course, we always want to belong and adapt and fit in and do okay. Uh, if not be successful in what society expects of us. But if that's our only measure of the journey, then I think resilience will be really challenged. And yeah. so we need to have an inner compass, really, is what I would call it. Right. It doesn't sound generic at all. And what I'm hearing you say, in effect, is that the capacity to tune into your own inner wisdom or guidance, uh, as we'll get to it soon, uh, your own inner dream or vision for life, that capacity can be strengthened as an inner strength, and also the, the capacity to act on what you were uh, recognizing in yourself as wisdom or guidance, that too is a kind of inner strength, which takes us in a sense to the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, as you well know, in medicine, there's a saying, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you had a fair amount of experience, as it were, in your 20s. You dropped out of medical school. Uh, you had a number of adventures. And I just wondered if you could talk for a few minutes about that. You know, some of the journeys you went on, particularly in light of the theme of aspiration of, you know, listening to that inner voice and then not listening to that inner voice. You know, staying on the track, losing yeah. track, finding the track. How'd you do that yourself? Well, I think, you know, the topic of aspirations is an interesting place to begin to address this personal question, because um, I think for me, when I was in high school, I, uh, I always found this notion of knowing, there's so many ways of interpreting that word, but the idea of how do we actually have an awareness of things? How do we actually have an understanding of things? How do we have a knowledge of things? How do we put a framework together to even understand things? All those layers of what the word knowing can mean. For me, I don't know why, but I, I would always have this kind of challenge as to just fitting in. I mean, just to give you a teeny example, in high school, uh, it was during the Vietnam War. And uh, a lot of people on my street, a number of the young men were, were actually volunteering to go to Vietnam. 
And uh, in our family, we were very much against violence. We were part of the several pacifist organizations. And I, I knew those kids from the time I was growing up. I, I knew they were wonderful people and they made decisions that I never would make. So I realized some way of knowing and making a decision about whether you go off to war or not was just profoundly different. And then when I was in high school, I got out of boys gym and I got into girls dance. And a lot of my peers who were boys would mock me for this thing, you know, calling me all sorts of names that I thought was kind of fascinating because they were all energized about it. So I had to really distinguish my inner experience and my relational experience with my fellow dancers from the boys who were, you know, mocking me in the hallways. So when I was in college, I did a bunch of different things that were like night and day. I would literally during the day work to find an enzyme that allowed salmon to go from fresh water to salt water and survive. And at night, I worked on a suicide prevention phone service, you know, trying to learn the art of talking to someone in a suicidal crisis to help them stay alive with hope. And I always felt there was something in common between the mechanism of an enzyme and the mechanism of an emotion. And I would try to talk to people about it in either field and they thought I was nuts. And so I, 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 I respected that that was their opinion, but I thought there must be some truth about it, even though I wasn't getting any external validation for that at all. And anyway, so I went, when I went to medical school, um, I, I thought there'd be a good way to converge those two ways of knowing the molecular and the mechanisms of health, you know, the, the enzymes and the emotions, if you will. And there was nothing that brought it together. So I became very, um, very disillusioned by what my professors were having me, not just me, but having all of us become, which was kind of like treating people like they were walking bags of organs and chemicals and mm -hmm. devoid of an internal mental experience. So, you know, I, I became very, uh, despairing and demoralized and depleted. And I, I, I said to myself, you know, I don't know what else I'll do, but I can't do this. So I dropped out of school and, and then I actually decided to become a salmon fisherman and took off across Canada to go join a salmon fishing team. Um, anyway, that's a long story, but the bottom line of all that was I found this journey was really important for me to get away from what anyone was telling me look for what would be my own truth, and ultimately came up with this word back then in 1980 called mindsight, and decided to go back to medical school with the idea that your inner experience, whether it's your inner compass or your feelings in your body or emotions or thoughts or beliefs, all that stuff we can call the mind. Uh, so not distinguishing heart from mind, but rather saying everything that's subjective experience, including your feelings and emotions and wisdom and intuition and, you know, your thoughts and empathy and compassion and all that I put under the word mind. And when you sense it or perceive it, I would call it mindsight. And I said, I have to remind myself these really smart, established senior professors who seem to lack mindsight would be my anti-role models. And I'd look for role models that had mindsight and try to learn from them. And I would learn from the anti-role models how not to be. And so it became fascinating to go back to school with this mindsight concept in the front of my mind as an aspiration. And that even though there was nothing supporting it anywhere, I mean, even the term theory of mind had just been developed in 1979. And this was now 1980 and I hadn't heard of it. But I thought there had to be something important about having a notion that there's a mind beyond chemicals. And uh, in terms of aspiration for me, when I was back there, I saw that patients, like I knew those people in crisis on suicide prevention, if you saw their mind, they could survive. If you didn't, the same was true with patients in the medical ward. If you saw their mind, they seemed to do better. They felt connected. And uh, that, that, that became my aspiration, you know, personally and professionally was to say the mind is real. And when we don't see it, it's not so good. And when you see it, it could be good. You know, that, that kind of that became the simple way of driving me forward. Wow. Thank you for all that. Um, I suspect we'll swing back to some of the factors that you engaged yourself to um, honor your aspirations um, and what helped, you know, what helped you in various ways. Uh, before we get there, though, I want to establish a little bit more of a foundation here. Um, in fact, related to Mindsight, 
As you know, one of the great uh, uh, researchers in adult development, Daniel Levinson, talked about the stages of a person's life, and that uh, was the basis for the book uh, called Passages that was more of a mass market book. And um, one of Levinson's core ideas, as you know, is the power uh, of the dream that a person had for their life when they were young. Not so much the particulars, like I want to be a fireman per se, or I want to work in that kind of an office, but more like what's underneath it, right? And then a person's relationship to that dream they had as, uh, as a young person uh, is a real important factor in, in how they relate to their own aspirations, including do they fulfill their wholesome aspirations or do they kind of feel like, um, you know, their life lacked an important thing that it could have had. So to get to that, I wondered if you could first help us understand how could a person use Mindsight to be aware as an adult? We'll talk a little bit later about supporting people who are young, but right now let's talk about adults. How can adults use Mindsight to tune into the the wholesome longings, the values, the aspirations, the dreams, the ambitions that they had for their life as a kid that may have been set aside or repressed, maybe related to some pain associated with them? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Um, so mindsight has three components. It has the component of insight into one's own inner life. It has empathy for the inner life of others. And it has a process called integration, which is how you um, allow differentiated elements of a system to elaborate their specialized and unique aspects. And then that's the differentiation part. And then you link them together. So um, so when we ask the question, well, how is mindsight related to tapping into your dreams? I would say this, that the mind, first of all, amazingly, and this was a shock to me, is not defined by virtually any discipline, whether it's philosophy of mind or psychiatry or psychology or anthropology, all, even education that helps people develop their minds. For some reason, the only thing beyond descriptions that's offered is saying the mind is brain activity, which as we know is, you know, having a feeling, let's say a subjective experience of a feeling is not the same as ions flowing in and out of memory, even if it's totally dependent on. So this is a fascinating process and we can talk about that later, but in terms of the question of mind sight, mind sight used to tap into your dreams, we need to realize that your psyche, your mind, because psyche is defined as the soul the spirit, the intellect, and the mind in Webster's Dictionary. And so with mind as a uh, synonym for psyche, if you take the stance, which is not a common stance to take, and it's gotten me into a lot of hot water with a lot of different scientists who have strong feelings about it, I think the mind is both within us and between us. So even as you say a personal dream that are in deep layers of the self, which we can talk about too, I think that the self, even deep personal early self, is both an internal and an interpersonal process. It's within and between. When you take a deep breath and relax into saying, I wanna know my dreams from my early self and pursue them, you can tap into all sorts of things like, let's say for yourself or myself, Rick, we would say, um, well, my dream as a child would be to have people see me for who I am. So I'm really seen. I want to be, you know, I want to be soothed. So when I'm distressed, I get connected to my parents. I want to be safe. And ultimately, I want to be secure. These four S's of, of attachment that you can talk about. So that's a, that's a deep um, need I have that motivates my behavior, that drives me to do certain things that you can say is embedded in my dreams. So, uh, if I have a mother and father are not doing that, maybe they're not keeping me safe, maybe they're not soothing me, maybe they're not having me be seen, so they just treat my behavior, not my mind beneath behavior, all those things. I'm going to have a dream, which could be both seen as an aspiration, a longing, but also literally a dream, and those can overlap, of course. So the word doesn't really have two meanings, it's kind of two manifestations of the same meaning. Uh, so then I say, okay, my dream is to find a way to have people honored for their inner life. Then, as I move through life, my respect for that dream means I have to be aware of the dream, so that's the insight, 
I have to be aware that other people will have different interpretations of those same needs in themselves. That's the empathy. And the integration in terms of applying mindsight to the dream is I honor the differences and promote linkages. So I say, my parents didn't do that because this happened to them, or I have a new romantic partner and she's not doing it because of her issues. You know, so maybe this isn't a good romantic partner for me and I'm just 20. So I leave her and I move on to somebody else and, or I, I don't want a romantic partner. Now I got to learn my own ways of soothing myself. So I learned to do meditation or whatever I do. There's all sorts of ways where you can honor the dream and realize that mindsight tells you that we don't do this in a cave. We actually manifest self both within and between. And so even if we talk about mindfulness itself, it's, it, it, it ought to be a fully embodied, that's the within thing, and fully relational, that's the between part, process. And so that's where the integration comes in. Anyway, so if you're going to apply mindsight to this notion of development, you want both the insight for yourself, empathy for others, and bringing it all together with integration. And that's how you'd apply it. That's good. So let's use an example. I think a lot of people, um, I can relate to this myself, when they're you know, eight, six, 15, they have a vision for a kind of life they want to have in terms of the sense of aliveness in it, uh, fun, adventure. And often there's a, there's an ambition that they want to have, they want to play in a big game. You know, they want to perform for a lot of people. Let's say they want to write a book that some, that people read, you know, they want to have clout in a certain profession. And then life unfolds and one series of choices after another in teens and then especially early 20s and then later 20s, zig, zig, zag, they end up kind of spun out over here in a backwater, as it were, rather than down the main stream of that life they wanted to have for themselves. And then there they are, 30, 40, 50. Um, this life over here has gotten increasingly concretized. Nothing wrong with that. They're not harming other people, but it feels divergent from that dream they had for their life. Maybe they dreamt, as it were, or were interested in a life that was due north, and the life they have now is east, or maybe it's northeast, but it's not mm -hmm. due north. And so a key part of reclaiming their own life in a lot of ways, uh, I think for many people, particularly in middle age, is to tune back into, and, re and in a sense, recover that vision that they had when they were younger. And to do that, they've got to draw upon some of the qualities that are implicit in what I've heard you talk about mindset before, a kind of friendliness toward yourself or a compassion toward yourself, treating yourself like you matter, which is a, and treating your dreams like they matter, yeah. which is particularly important if you've internalized or been with other people, as you talk about yourself, who acted like or told you that your dreams didn't really matter or they were effeminate, let's say, in a problematic sense for a boy to want to be a dancer. Um, things like that. And you stood up against that. And uh, maybe even as an adult, you've uh, reached back and recovered, reclaimed, stood up for, been an advocate for inside your own mind, um, these dreams that you might have had as a kid. So that's the territory, what I'm asking about here. And, and I wonder, maybe briefly before we go on to the next thing, if you have yeah. any further comments about this. I do. I do. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, well, there's a couple things. I mean, one is, um, in the model of the mind as this self-organizing emergent process that mindsight invites us to say what is the mind not just descriptions but a definition this self-organizing emergent process um, will tend toward harmony when it's liberated to do its thing which is to integrate stuff but it'll tend toward chaos and rigidity when not so when you talk about a person spinning out of control or stuck in a certain place there's all sorts of ways we may not follow through on what we initially thought and that can be absolutely fine but there are ways where no matter what we do we get stuck in rigidity and life becomes stagnant or a relationship becomes stagnant or we get filled with chaos and we have these intrusive nightmares and we feel this angst about how things should be a different way so one starting place is to say if there's chaos or rigidity for prolonged periods of time in your life, because we all go through that at various times in a day, but if it's prolonged, the issue in our frame is what's not integrated. So in terms of an early dream you're talking about, Rick, a lot of times I think what can happen is 
we start absorbing the expectations of others or we absorb the lack of our needs being met in our own structures of, you might call them adaptation or defense, whatever framework you like to use in terms of words, they mean essentially the same thing. And so you begin to filter everything in life through this frame of, well, of course I couldn't do that because I'm not worthy in terms of someone's filled with shame. Or of course I have to do this because to meet my parents' view, I've got to do what they said I should do. Either way, you're, you're moving in a way that's away from an inner compass, these aspirations that can be born from the dreams we have. And just to address specifically your question, these in a way are the junk that get in the way of a natural integrative process. And you've probably seen it as a therapist, and I've certainly seen it as a therapist, but also in my own life, that if I can get tuned into that internal compass, if I can really listen in to these internal sensations, and I can get through the rigidity of fixed ideas, like I have to do this because this person says I should do that, or the chaos where it's disturbing me because I didn't achieve something, if I can find my way, there's often this beautiful flowering of harmony, even just in a vision of where I ought to go in terms of aspiration. And so in this program, or in certainly in my work through interpersonal neurobiology, we really want to have people tune into those early dreams. We want to have them become aware of the chaos and rigidity that could be in, imprisoning them. And we want to have them realize that life is always unfolding. You're always in an emergent process. Only junk can really make you feel stagnant or chaotic. And the beautiful thing about being a human being is you have choice. And with, uh, with awareness, you can actually use different methodologies to liberate yourself. Uh, and ultimately, I think to free yourself to those original aspirations that, of course, can be modified as you grow, but then having this set of values and dreams and, and um, qualities of living that are your guideposts. So, so the internal compass then becomes literally like a compass. It gives you a true north. Only the true north needs to be a freed compass. It can't be like someone's got a bunch of magnets over here and say, come this way, Ricky, come this way. You know, you really want to try to see get clear so you're finding the true north of your life and you know when you find people who uh have either been imprisoned in various psychological ways that hadn't found it and discover it it's so inspiring to be hearing their story and feeling it and i would say for myself when i went back to medical school i had this kind of energy that now in retrospect i would say was releasing that integrative compass that was finding the way, no matter what my professors were telling me or what different disciplines were telling me, even psychiatry for me uh, was quite frustrating. And instead of dropping out, and I often had feelings to do that when I was in training, I thought, well, maybe I could participate with other like-minded, frustrated people and think about a way to reframe it uh, and maybe even draw on science as a foundation to build a, 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 a whole view of how mental health could be. And, you know, in our series that I oversee the publications, uh, the Norton series, we have 40 textbooks now available for mental health practitioners to actually draw on science and build a life of meaning and well-being. That's great stuff. Well, let's say now we've got someone who maybe has gotten spun out into a backwater in their life, which is not a criticism of them. Very often it's like my best friend um, was headed in one way and a girl he was with uh, got pregnant and he married her and there he was at 19 and his path took a different turn. Or think about mm -hmm. those young men you were talking about, certainly some young women too at the time, who went off to war in Vietnam and their life was going this way and suddenly it was going that way, you know, for many years later. And then, of course, there are many other people who um, you wouldn't say they have been kind of spun off the possibly, you know, main course of their life that they had originally hoped for and dreamt for. Uh, but in either case, now let's say that a person is quite aware of their aspirations. They've used mindsight, uh, sometimes using other words like mindfulness of themselves or an internal openness. They now know what their, their aims are. 
Okay, let's go to the next step. People bump into inner obstructions, inhibitions, blocks, um, fears of, you know, sticking your neck out because then you'll get hammered down. Uh, you know, you don't, who dare, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Those kind of things. So could you just name briefly here some of the internal blocks that you've seen people bump into in terms of pursuing the aspirations that they've, they know about now, but they're hitting inner blocks. Sure. What are some of the blocks you've seen people bump into and how have you helped them uh, work through those blocks? How, and what could people do themselves to work through blocks like that? Right. Well, I think the first setup is, you know, since we're social creatures, one very common source of a block is depending on external approval. Um, you know, and uh, I guess I can just go with your first line of questioning about my own personal development. You know, when I decided to leave the formal university life, um, uh, the paid faculty position I had, um, I was always feeling like I had to have the external approval of others. And I would say for people I work with, that's a very common block that rather pay, than paying attention to the internal compass and learning to rely on that as a guide for how you should go, it's always looking for external approval. So for my own journey, and I, I, this is true for people I work with all the time, it's a big moment when you say, I'm going to trust that this thing I'm feeling, whether it was your friend with his girlfriend who got pregnant or you know, certainly relationships are very complicated because we get not just shaped by them, we're defined by them. And so it's hard to pull back and say, this relationship is not good for me. Um, and my relationship with the university was something I always thought I would be a full-time faculty member. I'd be, you know, doing clinical work and research. I had a, you know, so when I realized that the modern university setting, at least where I was, but it turns out probably anywhere, wouldn't support an interdisciplinary set of theoretical formulations that could then be applied clinically, I realized I had to let that go. And that was very painful. And I think for other people too, you, you're set adrift. It's much easier to say, if I do X, Y, and Z, all these people will think I'm doing a good job. You know, and then you can always measure your progress by their response. So the first block is depending on external approval. Now, of course, we all want to be seen and appreciated and connected. And so I know for myself, the second thing I would say is a block that I've seen lots of people get into. And this is hard to put words to. So it'll be fun to see how we can discuss this, Rick, and whether you've had this experience yourself. I, you know, um, as a student was always, you know, someone would take classes and people would tell me what to take and I'd try to do the best I could and then move on to the next class, et cetera. Um, I never had the experience until I stopped the university of feeling like some other process was actually taking me over. And I don't know how to describe this exactly, but when I started writing what came to be my first book, um, there were all sorts of things, we don't need to get into it, but all sorts of things that would just start writing themselves through me. And that was very strange. And I, you know, the computers had just come around that we had at home and I would, didn't have a typewriter, but now had a computer and I would type all these things on the computer's keyboard. And I, I had this strange thing where I thought this was my life and I was in control of it. But this process, which began, you know, in the, well, 1995, so, you know, a long time ago, was another blockage that I've seen other people get where you feel like you're in control of everything. And it's, and I know this sounds like a cliche, but it, I think tuning into this internal compass, and this is the second big block, means you give up a feeling like you're the boss of the whole journey. And it's almost like getting out of your way in order to let the way create itself for you. And then you become almost like a conduit of a process that you can learn to have great gratitude for and respect for, and, and you don't own it. And, and so the, the longing to own something and, you know, beat on your chest and say, this is me, this is mine is completely understandable in this world we live in. But ironically, as this second block, 
This isn't about external approval. It's about internal ownership. And then, and I don't mean, you know, feeling strong about knowing who you are or, or feeling guided by your internal compass. I mean, feeling like somehow your uniqueness or your specialness owns something. So as this book got written, the first version of it was rejected for all sorts of reasons. The second version of it was rejected. And my friends would say to me, what is wrong with you? Why don't you give this up and just be a clinician and see patients? And why do you need to write a book anyway? Because, you know, you're not in academics anymore. What's wrong with you? And I would say, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm not writing this book. This book is being written through me. And that has happened over and over and over again, because I've written a couple of books now. And, and it's, it, 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 it's this quality of letting go of the illusion of a self that has solidity to it and opening up to this much uh, different way of living where you, you let things happen through you and it's beautiful. It's expansive, but it's a very different, it's like a whole different way of being. And that second block is equally as important as the first block. If I need other people's approval, the other is I need ownership. And I found in working with patients that, you know, people I work with, that if they can get to that place, then it's, it's very freeing. And then you become like a dancer with life rather than controlling everything and being sort of sitting on the sidelines watching the dance happen. The, the dance of life happens through you and it's not owned by you. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Um... I think of that uh, as giving oneself over to the stream of one's highest purposes and letting those carry you along. Yeah, and it's one's higher purposes and even, and I know this sound may sound a little too mystical, but even to some, and I know this sounds weird, but some way in which life is using you for a very important job that is not yours to own. It's almost not even yours to define, but it's yours to yield to and um, honor. And it becomes incredibly collaborative because then whatever arises is something that when you're with other people who are of a similar mindset, it's this beautiful joining. And you realize we are all in this as a continuous flow and the feeling of the lo loneliness, which I guess would be a third issue, begins to dissolve away. And, and you re realize ironically, once you know yourself, you can let go of your separate self. And then suddenly life is a gas. It is fantastically fascinating and interesting and fun. And of course, there's suffering in the world. We need to help other people suffering. But the flip side is it's unbelievably exciting because you're not the boss of anything. You can let it go. And, you know, I have relatives who are in AA and, and they tell me, yes, yes, you know, I've tried to articulate this. And they say, yes, yes, that's that's the AA motto, you know, uh, let go and let God, you know, and stop thinking that you're in control. Well, I don't have an experience in AA myself, but I, I'm thrilled that for my AA relatives, it's worked for them. And I think there's some real deep wisdom in that, that notion. Mm, that's great. That's a great way to approach inner inhibitions, as it were, inner constraints at manifesting yourself fully. Uh, you know, yeah, give, quit seeking approval and also kind of give yourself over to these purposes streaming through you, including life altogether, using you to help things turn out better. Beautiful. And, you know, it's like this um, in the conference we were just at on empathy and compassion in society. The lesson over and over and over again, you know, that you were teaching, that I was teaching, but we were hearing from everybody was, you know, the... The act of reaching out and supporting another person's thriving, which some people call kindness, or the act of reaching out and reducing another person's suffering, which people might call compassion, or just feeling another person's feelings, which people might call empathy. All those things, these ways of nurturing each other, let us realize that that's actually the way to be happy. You want to be happy, help somebody else. Uh, you want to have somebody else be happy, help them be happy, you know, help, help, help their lives thrive. So this is... From a scientific point of view, I think it has to do with the letting go of this separate self. And what was fascinating, I was just in New York doing some teaching at a school and had some dinner with some friends who had, were in New York to be with the Dalai Lama for two days. 
And um, so I said, oh, what was that like to be with His Holiness for two days? They said, well, it was one topic over two days. I said, what was the topic? They said, emptiness. And I said, oh, tell me about emptiness. I'm fascinated with, with, about emptiness. They go, well, emptiness. And they started giving me the different philosophical variations on Tibetan Buddhism and different things that His Holiness talked about. And I said, you know, so what you're just saying is that what's really empty is the illusion of a separate self. They go, exactly. I said, but you know, when you let that separate self go, when you go through that path, it's actually really full. They go, exactly. And I said, well, why is it called emptiness if this is really fullness? They said it was a mis, His Holiness, apparently, this is what they told me, said it was a mistranslation. It really should be fullness, but what's empty is the falsehood of our separateness. And I said, oh my God, and I started to give a, a hoot out in the restaurant, everyone kind of turned. I said, I've been waiting to understand that because I never knew what this word emptiness was really referring to because if, at least if I was anything close to it, even though I'm not a, a practitioner of that way of understanding our inner life, it's from something else. But if, it, if they were converging in a conciliant way where these overlapping of different pursuits, then it felt so full. And they said, yes, 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 it feels full. So the table was filled with this incredible joining around this insight of a mistranslation of the word, you know, and what was also cool about that in terms of your question is, and this maybe would be a third or fourth issue that gets in people's way, you know, and maybe there's a subset of the second one. I think there's a feeling that's very understandable that people long for certainty. And if you say you're Rick and I'm Dan, we got some certainty there and you've got a social security number. I've got a social security number, some security there. If you're a kid in school, you have your GPA, there's some certainty in the number. You do your SAT, you do it, all this stuff. But the irony is, I think aspirations emerge when you embrace uncertainty. And you, you, you don't just tolerate uncertainty and you don't just give up your fear of uncertainty. You thrive in uncertainty. And that's a practice that we can get from different ways of developing it. But I think that's really crucial for liberating aspiration. And I would say for me as now, since I've written a few books, I would say my writing life um, is only able to exist because I, I've learned to love the uncertainty of it. And I wait for the feeling inside of me that usually comes around four in the morning I go, oh, my God, this book has taken me over. And it's only then that I'll set up, you know, the project of the book. And then the book starts writing itself through me. And I, I don't, sometimes I won't write for weeks. And sometimes I'll write nonstop for three or four weeks. And I don't know. I can't control it. And I can't be certain about it. And so, so letting that happen can only occur for, for this aspiration now of, trying to put ideas out in the world in a book form through embracing uncertainty. I say, people say, well, and this is a little weird. I don't know if you get this with your books, Rick, but I get it with mine. People say, oh, you know, this book changed my life and I love it so much. And I say, thank you so much. It means so much to me, which it does, that it helped transform your life and liberate you and help put things together. Inside, I'm so grateful for that. But at the same time, I feel like I really didn't write the book. The book wrote itself. I'm so grateful that it used these fingers to type it out. And, and I, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for being a servant of the book. And I'm really happy these books help so many people. But I, I, I actually feel when people are saying to me that it's like they're talking to this body, which I appreciate, about a thing, the book, that was really helpful to them. And I almost want to say, book, you did a nice job, <laughs> you know? Good for you, book. <laughs> you know, yes, thank the book. And of course, that would be too weird to say in a short amount of time, but I'm saying it here because it's this quality of um, feeling like a servant of something, which on the one hand, you can say, well, that's so sad. Dan is not really taking credit for these books that help so many people. Well, actually, I don't take credit for it. I feel like the field of mental health or the field of knowledge or whatever needs these books to be written. And when the time is right, the book, for whatever reason, is finding this body and this entity and it gets written through it. And I'm always fascinated to see what happens on the keyboard when it comes out. Oh, well, well, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, and then the book gets out there. And if it's helpful, that's I, I couldn't be more deeply, deeply appreciative that 
for whatever reason, this aspiration is almost like being a channel or a conduit of some other bigger process that I'm, I'm so grateful that if I can play that role in that, I, I feel very grateful for it. And to me, that's the aspiration is to, to be able to create whatever the conditions are. I exercise this body. I sleep this body. Well, you know, now, now I'm even sleeping it more, which is wonderful. I'm feeding it pretty well. I go out in nature a lot. I set the conditions for this body to have whatever as close to a century as it's going to get. And then whatever the service it needs to provide, my aspiration is to be of service that way. And, and I don't know what's going to happen next. People say, what are you working on next? I, you know, I said, well, I, I think this is going to happen. I don't really know. I have to see what I don't choose it. You know, mm. so does that make any sense? Well, it made tons of sense. And uh, some of your best well-known books um, or best-known books are related to parenting and children and, and young people. And I'm thinking about translating uh, the wisdom in what you've been saying here to younger people, uh, many of whom do long for approval. Uh, they really want to claim their accomplishments as their own. And they, there's a lot of pressure on them and reason for them to do that. And they tend to want certainty because, of course, they're facing a lot of uncertainties. So how can, maybe we could segue now to what uh, parents and educators and others can do with younger people based on your own experience and what you know about the brain. Um, what can we do with younger people to, yeah. you know, honor their aspirations, help them sort out the wheat from the chaff sometimes? I, I think that some survey of American teenagers, something like 89% of them said that they were going to be a professional athlete or a rock star when they grew up. And yeah. I think it's great to dream big dreams, but it's also good sometimes to have a plan B. Um, so how can, you know, how can adults uh, work with younger people? Do you have any words of wisdom for us about this one? Absolutely. Well, I don't know if they're words of wisdom. I have words <laughs> and we'll see if they're, they have wisdom in them. Um, you know, in, um, well, in Parenting from the Inside Out with Mary Hartzell, the, the message for adults is the research shows the most important thing you can do is have inner understanding. Um, in particular, know where you were at when you were a kid with your caregivers so that you can actually make sense of what happened to you and liberate yourself to be the parent you want to be. It's a way of integrating your brain, if you want to talk in brain terms, but it's a way of making sense of your life. Um, in the two books I wrote with uh, Tina Bryson, my student and now colleague, you know, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, we took the ideas of the developing mind which say that integration is the base of health. And we, we sort of go on a journey with the parent reading the book to apply integration in everyday parenting experiences. And then with the adolescent uh, book, which parents are reading, but it was really written for both adults and adolescents to read, Brainstorm, I really wanted to look at what the messages were uh, given in our culture, given in our schools, given even in the privacy of our own homes with our kids. And the messages, it turns out, most of them were wrong. And these myths were destructive and disempowering for adults and adolescents. So we have a couple of schools now, in terms of your question, Rick, about what could schools do or how would we approach things differently and what would the educational approach be? There are a few schools now that are going to be based on the brainstorm ideas. And we just had a big meeting, um, actually, in New York just uh, two weeks ago. So I can give you specifically what emerged in those discussions and what comes from the reasoning of the brainstorm book. Think about individuals, you know, who have um, kids, teenagers, grade school kids or young adults. Um, also think about uh, educators or others working with kids of that age individually. Imagine you've got a kid in front of you. Uh, you can even imagine yourself, you know, uh, yeah. as a young person. Um, what can we say to kids? What can we not say to kids? What can we well, use mindsight to tune into? Do you mean adolescents or do you mean... Um... I'm deliberately keeping it kind of open. Um, I think okay. in many ways, some of the brightest minds on the planet are in fourth grade. Yes. Uh, you know, it's a really important age before the preteen storms and so forth. And I also think there are a lot of ways that um, teenagers, you know, they, they lose faith with themselves. They um, It's scary to stand yeah. up for what they felt was true. You had the courage as a teenager to stand up though for your own dream. And then you have young adults who often feel a lot of pressure to conform in various ways or to 
tick certain checklists off in various ways. And there might be some reasonableness for that, but it's so easy to get caught up in just a sequential slog, boom, 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 and lose sight of your own vision. So yeah. these are just anyway, some of the things I've seen. And I thought, boy, let's ask Dan Siegel about these sort of issues right. in real well, practical th- ways. What could you yes. offer us here? Here's a, the practical framework begins with realizing that in many very stressed homes and busy homes, in schools as they are today, and in the culture, mindsight is not being taught. Now, that means having awareness of the internal world of your subjective life, even the internal world of another, so they're both internal. So if you wanted to use the word internal education, uh, knowing your own inner world, the inner world of another, and then honoring the differences, that's the integration thing. So that's why I say it's basically a mindsight approach to education inside empathy and integration. This internal education really requires that you stabilize how a child's able to focus attention with intention on the internal world. So mindfulness practices should be essential starting in kindergarten to allow the internal world to be made real. And you can see from my own personal experience, this was never there. And even in medical school, it wasn't used even in professional practice. So whatever level of education, an internal education with these mindset principles of insight, empathy, and integration is essential. Now, what would that mean on a practical level? It would mean giving kids several minutes a day of not an add-on, but a core part of the curriculum. If you have core curriculum where you're learning to spell, you're learning to do math, well, you learn to do internal reflection. You do reflection on relationships. You build resilience. So I call this the new three R's of education, not just reading, writing, arithmetic, but reflection on the inner world, relationships, the importance of how we connect with each other's inner worlds, how we treat each other with respect and compassion, kindness. And then that builds resilience. So you start in preschool, you work your way into kindergarten, you go up to the fourth graders you're talking about, and you march it through. Now. When you get to adolescence, an adolescent is not just an older child, so there are certain fundamental changes. So instead of just seeing the adolescent as a brain that's continuing to absorb synaptic connections, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, the brain is beginning to remodel. And that remodeling has a pruning process that specializes the brain and a myelinating process that links the now more specialized areas. So in adolescence, the change is that instead of being a generalist as a, that fourth grader you're talking about, where they should be exposed to everything and learning everything and loving everything and trying to do their best at everything, now, as Ken Robinson talks about, there's an element that may be particularly attractive to a child, a passion that they feel, a proclivity that they have, something that they really love, dancing, you know, doing math, um, drama, you know, art, music, sports, whatever it is. That should not just be an add-on. We should realize that the adult is going to become a specialist. You don't ever expect an adult to be good at everything and interested in everything. You realize you have certain interests and certain things you like. And adolescence really should be supported in that. And the way I would do it, it involves this word essence. There's an emotional spark. We want to tap into adolescence, the ES of essence, the adolescence knowing where their passion is. What For example, world problem, do you want to work on for the next three months? Social engagement, how do you actually collaborate? Instead, we tell adolescents, compete, compete, compete. Well, if you want them to have their competitive edge, have them compete with a world problem so that when they win the competition, everybody benefits. Adolescents are built to collaborate, and we do very little to allow them to do that. The N of essence is novelty. We need to have new ways of approaching things, not just the same old curriculum, and honor that. And that newness is based on a lot of the dopamine changes that happen in the reward system. We don't need to get into that right now, but but there are reasons to really build novelty into an adolescent curriculum. And then the CE is creative exploration. The adolescent brain is designed to push against the status quo. And the benefit of that is that for our species, we adults have specialized to a world that's already changed, but we're tired at the end of the day. You know, the reason we can continue adapting is because of this 
incredible imagination of adolescence to imagine a world that doesn't exist, to have the courage with novelty to push against that world and try new things, to have the collaborative, compassionate, connecting nature of adolescence and have that passion, that emotional spark that is the essence of all of what adolescence is about. So I think what we need to do in realizing adolescence extends beyond 19 years of age into the mid to late 20s, we need to tap into this essence, not just for the health and excitement of the adolescent individual, but for our planet. I think if we put adolescence to work in this sparky emotional way of passion, you know, having all this way of collaborating, having the courage of novelty and the the ability to imagine a world that doesn't exist now, I'll bet you they're going to figure out how to solve some of the world's most difficult problems. So I think, you know, it's a win-win situation. We can get people to actually have the foundations of well-being built into their lives. We can get them to get in tune with an internal compass that allows them to let go of this separate self so their aspiration becomes an intention that drives their motivation and action and so they're freed from the chaos and rigidity that are kind of impairing them. And then if they can do it together, and you realize the mind is not just within us, it's also between us, we could actually change the world. We can change not only the cultural conversation around adolescence, we can change the world where it's like this thing in Bhutan, right? The gross national happiness measure. We could actually start having empathic joy for each other's success. And wouldn't that be an amazing world? It'd be phenomenal. Uh, what a vision. Uh, we just have a couple more minutes, but I definitely want to slip this question in. Yeah. If you could put yourself today, like you today, in a time machine and go back to a difficult time for yourself as a younger person, maybe in high school, but probably maybe more as a young adult, and you had a chance to, you know, say one or two things to that younger version of yourself, uh, particularly related to the theme of aspiration. Can you set that up for us? Can you imagine a time uh, when you were younger and, and what would have been so good to have heard then uh, that you could offer to yourself knowing it now? Yeah. You, you want me to do that out loud? or just Yeah, if you're willing to go for it. <laughs> I figure you're uh, a brave person, so I could yeah. ask you this. Uh, I, I probably would go back to perhaps when I was maybe 16 or so and... I would tell myself that the messages I was getting from my family, from my school, from my culture, um, that the self of Dan, talking about a personal message, you know, was just in this body, was not only um, scientifically incorrect, which would have helped me then because I was a big time science guy, you know, interested in science. I said, scientifically incorrect but it's spiritually offensive. It's, it's psychologically damaging. And from a personal point of view, it is a, a belief that when it is thrown on top of not just me, I would tell myself as a 16 or 17 year old, but when it's thrown on top of everyone else around you, it makes people miserable. It makes them competitive and greedy. It makes them have this state of insufficiency where no matter what you do for the self in quotes, that's only in this body, uh, you got to hurry up and get whatever it is, uh, achievements, stuff, money, whatever. It is. And that always felt to me deep, deep, deep inside to be profoundly wrong. But all the messages from all these sources kept on repeating the message. So I guess I would say to myself, if I could go in that time machine, I would say, you know, I used to be called Danny back then. I'd say, Danny, I'd say, it's going to be okay. Trust your inner compass, trust your intuition, trust those feelings you have, even though there's no one around you supporting this notion that you're actually deeply connected to other people and other organisms, other the whole planet. That feeling you have is worth trusting. You may not understand it yet, but go with your intuition, go with that sensibility and uh, things will work out. That's what I would say. That's a beautiful place to end. And obviously, in your case, things have really worked out and they're continuing to work out. Uh, Dr. Dan Siegel, psychiatrist, uh, professor at UCLA Medical School, founder of the Mindsight Institute, uh, author of something like eight or nine books, I think, at this point, and certainly mm -hmm. also in many languages. Uh, you can learn more about uh, Dan's work, uh, which is remarkable, and his 
his trainings for therapists and also for people in general, as well as a, a collection, a rich collection of other resources at drdansiegel.com. I recommend Dan's books and learning more about his work. And again, Dan, I want to express my personal gratitude to you. You've been very kind to me individually uh, in my own process here, and I'm grateful to you for it, and I really appreciate you. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate you, and I'm very grateful for you. Thanks so much for, for inviting me to join you on this journey. That concludes today's episode. Once again, the interview was taken from Dr. Hansen's Foundations of Wellbeing program. The Foundations program is an online, year-long course that teaches us how to develop the key inner strengths that lead to a good life. I'll include a link to the program in the description of this episode if you'd like to check it out for yourself. We hope you'll join us again next week when we continue the 11th strength in our year-long series, Aspiration. Until then, thanks for listening.